to the book of Romans, chapter 9, dealing with just the last four verses from 30 to 33 of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow uh, the one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Romans 9 on page 889 of that Bible. Many of you might not know this, but I was indeed an athlete in college. I basically minored in bowling, uh, so it turns out that I needed to have a couple of phys ed classes, and at Michigan Tech, the uh, rec center was all the way up a really large hill, and there was 0% chance that I was going to go up there or probably transfer to another school. So I took bowling, which was the only thing that you could take for phys ed that was available in the center of the school. And so I became, if I would say so myself, pretty mediocre at bowling over the course of my time there. I know a lot of people, when they go bowling, they need to use the bumpers, and I always find that that is something of an embarrassment for an adult. Anytime that you need the same help that a five-year-old does, you ought to be embarrassed by that. I know this because that's why I don't ice skate. I've lived in Michigan my whole life, and if I went out ice skating, I would have to have one of those little, like, um, uh, wheelchair things that, that they use for five-year-olds to, to help them walk through that. Those bumpers are important, though, in other areas of life. We need balance. We need guardrails to keep us from falling off one side or another. Jesus told us that we walk a narrow path that is difficult. That narrow path that is difficult has ditches on either side that are deep and are dark. We easily lose our sense of balance by bending and moving too far in either direction. There are people in this world who find in the ninth chapter of Romans everything that possibly needs to be said about salvation. We want to encourage that belief that Romans 9 is true, that God's plan is not left up in any wise to man's ability or ingenuity. It is all worked out by God. But there is balance to that. We do not believe that Romans 9 is all that there is to say about salvation. It's fortunate that Paul gives us then Romans 10, where he insists that while God's plan is sure and true, Man does have, after all, a necessary response to the gospel. There needs to be a crying out and a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. We need both. We need to be balanced in thinking that it is just a response of man and not an act of God from Romans 9. But we need to have the response that we do indeed need to respond to the calling of the gospel from Romans 10. Our passage this morning is something, therefore, of a transition between Romans 9 and Romans 10. Paul has started to explain Israel's failure. That's how all of this began. Why was it that Israel is not saved? Why is it that, that this has happened? Is this a failure in God's plan? He has answered that. And if asked, why is it that Israel has failed to secure the promises? I think that if you were to say, well, God has not elected them, you would answer correctly, but that is only half of the answer. The second half comes today. The failure of Israel is because of their unbelief. Let us read Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say, then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith 
faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of our God. The first thing I want to point out about this particular passage of Scripture is the incredible deficiency of the Gentiles' work. The incredible deficiency of the Gentiles' work. None of this would really need to be said at all if massive numbers of Gentiles hadn't come into the church. It possibly could have been explained by another mean, or it wouldn't have had this much of an explanation. It wouldn't have been this big of a deal if it were just a small sect of people. They would have thought that we are just the true people of Israel, and they wouldn't have had to explain why it was that all these Gentile people are coming in. The, the coming in of the Gentiles, the flooding of the church of the Gentiles, requires an answer as to why the Jewish people haven't believed. And election is part of that explanation. And we often explain election through the lens of justice. I said this last week. Josh said it better, actually, two weeks ago. Mercy and justice are not the same thing. God can have mercy on people without being unjust to anyone, even those whom he condemns. God is, after all, the offended party. God is, after all, the prosecutor. God is, after all, the judge. And so if he is to pardon, who is to decry that? Who is to bemoan the fact that God has mercy on who he has mercy We can understand this. But in seeking to understand it, we have this sort of unwelcome effect of making this really radical thing very tame. It makes it more palatable for us, but it it decreases something of the shock that the grace of God really ought to have for us. And the language that Paul uses here, I think, is really helpful. He uses this idea of pursuing and attaining. It's, It's language from races, this sort of language of of running after something that Paul uses in a number of different places. In my mind, it it brings to mind those sort of African pictures of lions chasing after antelope and pursuing it until they they attain it. He's saying that the Jews strove to do that and didn't, but these big, fat, sort of Gentile people who were lazy and didn't do anything, somehow they attained it. How does that happen? Better is actually the picture of runners in a race. If you were to picture this sort of as the Summer Olympics and everyone is coming ready to run, the Jews show up to this in track suits. They've got their headphones on. They've got determined look in their eyes. They're stretching. They're warming up. They have clearly trained for this. You can tell that these are people devoted to what's going on here. You can tell that they have put time and energy and sweat an effort into what is about to happen. They are going to pursue and they are going to run because they've trained for this, they've wanted this. And in the middle of the infield, the Gentiles are sort of rolling around in the grass. They're looking up at the stars in the sky. They're a little bit overweight, a little balding, middle-aged. Y'all are looking at me. It's rude. Uh, So they they clearly are not prepared for what's about to happen. They, they They have in no way, shape, or form trained for this. They have not striven for it. They have no idea what's about to come to them. We we read the story of the tortoise and the hare. And we know the hare always loses. And every time we read that to our kids, in the back of our mind we're thinking, okay, I I get the lesson, but that's dumb. Because the hare ain't losing. 
It doesn't matter how far the race is. It doesn't matter how long the race is going to take. That rabbit is always going to be ahead of a tortoise. Has anyone ever actually seen a tortoise? The hare is going to win. And what Paul is doing is if you look at these two people, you have on one side Usain Bolt and you've got on the other side me. And Usain's not losing. He's going to win. And Paul says, no, actually. Because the race isn't about them. The attaining is not about them. It is about me. It ought to boggle our minds. I think we're trained through the preaching of the gospel to sort of normalize or to tame the way in which this actually works out. But it is truly striking. The Jews have trained and worked for this. They know the law. They've studied it. They know of God. They sought to do right by him. They have worked, breathed, and lived out the Torah through difficulty and oppression. They have sweated and they've labored for this. And the Gentiles have done nothing. They don't know this God. They have not recognized his scripture. They have sought their entire lives to live completely and utterly ignorant of this God. And yet they are the ones who are granted access to him. They are the ones who attain a right relationship with him. This ought to absolutely shock us. There is a total and amazing deficiency in the Gentiles' work. There is nothing there. And Paul says, they are the ones who attain it. God's grace is radical. It is, in a colloquial way of putting it, unnatural. And we would do well to remember that. The second and, I think, much more important point is the indisputable irrelevancy of the Jews' work. The indisputable. It's not, it's not even up for an option. The irrelevancy of the Jews' work. Paul is trying to compare two things, and the comparison is weird in two ways. So let me go through it, try to pick your eyes up from the Scripture. This is the only time in this church that I'm going to tell you to ignore Scripture. Pick your eyes up from the Scripture. And so you don't, I don't want you to cheat. I can see it in your eyes. I don't want you to cheat. So pick your eyes up and walk with me through what Paul is saying here. Okay? So he says, The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued... Now, I think if most of us were writing that sort of comparison, what we would immediately plop down in there is they pursued righteousness, right? The, the Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness. Now, again, I think we need to hold back and say, what is Paul meaning by righteousness? He doesn't mean that they didn't pursue morality, okay? The Greeks pursued morality. They spent a lot of time talking about virtue and what is virtuous and what is good and what is right and what is true. Go back and, and read any of a number of Greek. The Greek people did more of this than any other people in history to write about what is good and true. So they, they, they strove for morality or for virtue might be a better way to put it. But what they didn't do is strive for a relationship and a right standing before this God. They might have wanted a right standing before Zeus or before Mercury or before any of the other of the pantheon of gods, but they never strove to be right before this God. They never strove to be right before the Jewish God. 
They would never even seek a right relationship with him and to make sure that they are rightly related to him in one way or another. So we would think that it's Israel who pursued righteousness, but that's not what Paul says. He says Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. It's sort of like they pursued the law for the sake of righteousness. They pursued the law so that they might be righteous through the law. He then concludes, that's the first weird thing, he says they did not succeed in reaching that law. In verse 32, then he says, why? And here is the second weird thing. Why didn't they reach that law? Why didn't they attain what they were striving for? Given what Paul has said earlier, given what we preach and hear from Christians all the time, you might say, well, your first problem, Jews, is that you were pursuing the law. Like, the law is the problem, man. You can't pursue the law. You need to pursue grace or you need to pursue Jesus. We would, we would pop that sort of answer in anywhere. And I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. It's true. They pursued the law. That's not what Paul answers. It's not what Paul says. We might secondarily say, well, okay, it wasn't maybe wrong to pursue the law after all the law was given to them by God. Maybe it's right to pursue the law. But why did they fail to achieve it? We would easily and quickly answer, well, their sin. Their sin was always to keep them from attaining the law because you have to be perfect before the law in order to attain it this way. Interestingly enough, also not what Paul says. I don't think either of those answers are wrong. But that's not what Paul says. What does Paul say? Why didn't they succeed in reaching the law? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Paul is not overly concerned with the Jews pursuing the law. As a matter of fact, given what he says here, the implication is strongly that pursuing the law is perfectly fine. It's not their pursuits that were mangled. It's the way in which they pursued them. I do want to caution us in language like that with something that I, I hate doing because I can't fill this in for you right now. But I do want to warn you that the way in which the Jewish people, the gospel and the law commingle with one another is distinct and different from the way Gentiles, that's the vast majority of, if not all of us, the law and the gospel interact with one another. The best way to come to an understanding of this is to go to Galatians 1 and 2 and to read it carefully. That's time for us. We don't have time for that today. That's another section. Paul is clearly only writing to Jewish people here. And so the Gentiles cannot pursue the law and be saved by Jesus Christ. The Jews, on the other hand, are distinct in this because they are already under the law. And so there's a difference in how they do it. You'll notice that right away there is a a way in which Paul and what he argues here flies in the face of what some people continually want to say about the law. That the law was just a covenant of works. The law was just a way for people to work, to be made right with God. And that's not what we do anymore. And Paul says, no, you can pursue the law, but you must do it by faith. It was never about the work. The law was never set up, was never intended to make people do the things so that they would be right with God. We can see this historically and we can see this theologically. Historically, Paul puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was made some 400 to 430 years before the Mosaic covenant even came into being. But we can 
get a little bit closer to the book of Exodus and talk about how it's clear that God didn't think that you established a relationship with him through keeping the law. The people of Israel are down in Egypt. They're being oppressed and put in slavery. There's a risen of Pharaoh who does not know Joseph and does not know his family. He is evil and he is wicked. He has placed them under forced labor and he's made life hard on them. He has tried to kill their sons. God hears the cries of their oppression. And in the desert, he calls this Moses to him through the burning bush. And he says to Moses, listen, the cries of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have come to me and I will deliver them for the low one-time price of 10 commandments. So here they are. You got to take them to them, see if you can barter with them. I need them to sign off on this though. It's kind of a deal breaker. He doesn't do that. He says, Moses, we're going to go deliver them. He doesn't get halfway through them. Say, okay, I've given you five for free. You're not quite done yet. The next five, I kind of need you to sign off on some stuff. I need you to agree with me that you're going to follow my commandments. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get through all ten, pull them out, dump on them all of the, the riches of Egypt as the Egyptians are just throwing goods at them when they're leaving. He doesn't do all of that kindness to them. Bring them out right to the brink of the sea as Pharaoh's armies are coming down upon them and then look at them and say, now, now you're really stuck. So before you could have like said, I'm just going to put up with it and we'll just, we'll just stay here in slavery. I don't want your commandments. But now you're kind of stuck. So listen, either Pharaoh kills you, you drown in the sea, or you do my commandments. This is my deal. God doesn't say that either. He cracks the sea open. He lets his people walk through. He lets them watch as he buries Pharaoh's army underneath all that water. And says, you are my people. He redeemed them from slavery, wholly, completely, and totally. He redeemed them from their oppressors, wholly, completely, and totally. And he did so without one pledge from them, without one confession from them, without one statement of I will or I do or we will. He didn't ask for it. He didn't get it. He didn't need it. He redeemed them wholly and fully on his own authority and wholly and fully on his own will. He didn't ask for any, any sort of response from them at all. Theologically, this is embedded in the law. The very first commandment in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Before he gets to the commandment, he reinforces for them I am your God. I have delivered you. I have brought you out. The relationship is made. You can't possibly think that the law is about establishing your relationship with God. Before you find out what you have to do to be God's people, God reminds them, you are my people. The law was always to be pursued by faith, not by works. The law was given to a people graciously by a God who had already bought them. Their work was always to be a depiction of their faith, not the means of establishing their standing before God. Now, at some point in time, you might well ask, honestly, what is the practical difference, right? You got two guys, you got Hiram, 
and Ethan. Hiram knows all the stories. And he says, listen, I got I to gotta maintain this relationship with God. God might have called me. He might have put me in Israel. But if I don't do what God commands, I'm out. And so it's up to me to maintain it. It's up to me to do what is right so that God knows that I'm part of his people or so that I'm maintaining that relationship with him. And so he does as many of the commands as he can. He relies on the sacrifices if, if he fails. And he says, listen, I, I am making myself right before God. I am doing what the law commands me to do so that I might be right before God. And Ethan, and Ethan does the exact same stuff. But he, he, he thinks that it's because God is gracious. God graciously called me. And this is a good response. He, he, he has graciously given sacrifices so that, that he can make me right with him. I mean, honestly, what's the issue? It, it might be clear from the commandments themselves, it might be clear from the law and from the Pentateuch itself that the Jews really had never considered, shouldn't have ever considered, that their work was the establishment of the relationship. There is, I think, an indisputable irrelevancy to the work of the Jews in establish, establishing a relationship with God, but what is the, the net effect? Why does it even matter? It matters because of third, the undeniable, undeniable centrality of Jesus' work. It might look like these two gents are even, but the truth of the matter is when Jesus shows up that those two outlooks have two very different reactions to him. There's a right way to understand the work of Jesus and what he came to do and if you view yourself as being made right by God, to God, by the very things that you do, there is no way to rightly understand the work of Jesus Christ. Let's, just for a second, let's think through this. If you pursue the law by works, you are essentially, and I think unequivocally, under the belief that you can make yourself right with God. The problem that faced Israel throughout its entirety of its history and again, Paul is thinking about Jews in his day. These are post-exile Jews who have come back but aren't completely all the way back. They're still under Roman oppression. They're still awaiting the promises of God to come true. The problem faced by the people of Israel was not a problem of nature. It was a problem of will. They didn't want the law enough. They didn't strive for it enough. And the Jews had fixed it. You read the Old Testament and you see the type of people that inhabit Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And there is no doubt that there has been something of a transition there. Because the kingdom didn't seem to care a lick about the law. They could come and go, especially in monotheism, they were continually taken in the gods from everywhere else. But once you get to Jesus, it's clear that you didn't touch the gods around you. The Jews looked down on everybody else. There was no way they were going to fall into the same trap. They worked it out. They strove and labored to make it clear. The law was simply given as a way to demonstrate to God that you were fit for his kingdom. And the sacrifices, well, they were there to show that you were willing to make it right. But it was about you. God set it up, but you were to knock them down. So when Jesus shows up, 
and he sits with sinners. It's a real problem. Why? Why do you sit with prostitutes and tax collectors? Don't you know that they're like prostitutes and tax collectors? Like they're not trying. They're not striving for the law. They're not doing what the law commands. They're not righteous at all. When Jesus continually makes his, his home with people who are probably of a lower station by any estimation, that's a real problem. Why not strive with those who have made it their duty to know the Scripture and to know them well? You are to be the Messiah of God. Shouldn't you be with those who know and love the Scriptures the most and are striving the hardest to be right with God? Shouldn't you be with the leaders of Israel if you were going to lead Israel yourself? Why are you with this rabble from Galilee? And, and honestly, the death of Jesus could not possibly make any sense whatsoever. Don't be under any sort of appreciation that the Jews weren't awaiting a Savior. They knew they needed a, a Savior. They knew they needed a Messiah. They weren't, they weren't blown away by this fact. What they didn't need a Messiah for was their sin. What they didn't need a Messiah for was to make them right with God. That had been accomplished. That box had been checked quite a while ago. They didn't need God to deal with their sin. They had done that. They needed God to deal with everyone else's sin. Specifically, the Romans. God had promised them the land. They were kind of in the land, but it wasn't their land. He needed to deal with the, the sort of people on the edges of Israel who were doing the same thing that the people prior to the exile had done and dabbling with the other nations and, and doing these horrible practices that the law condemns. They needed the Messiah to show up so that God could carry out his end of the bargain. We are your people. Now it's time for you to come and establish your kingdom. It would be completely and utterly opaque to such people how Jesus could do any of that from the cross. The cross becomes an emblem of a person who has precisely failed at all these things. Instead of overcoming the Romans, Jesus has succumbed to them. Instead of punishing sin, he stands under the curse. Instead of bringing the blessings of God to his people, he stands condemned by the righteous among the people. No wonder they wagged their tongues at him and said, hey, if you are truly the Son of God, come down. Why be condemned? Why let Rome persecute you and crush you? If you are truly God's Son, come down. People who are righteous by their own work have no need for Jesus. Not this one. But those who pursue the law by faith have plenty of reasons to understand the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Those who rightly understand that God has delivered them and established the relationship realize that God has not given them the law to show them how, how they can be good enough to be with him but rather he has given it because he has shown that he wants to be with them. Not to prove themselves, but how to become people of God. They realize the sacrifices are not about their own worthiness. After all, the sacrifices were not worthy by the person who offered them. The person who offered them could be a rank sinner, and it would be acceptable. What is to be perfect? Not the one who offered it, 
but the spotless and blemishless one is the offering itself. They read through the history of the nation and the absolute blessing and kindness of God to the people over and over and over again. God graciously delivered them from Egypt. He graciously led them through the wilderness. He graciously provided the land for them. He graciously gave them judges when they needed to be freed of their own oppression. He graciously established a king when everything was going chaos. He graciously revealed himself through the prophets when they were confused with all the other gods. It was all God's grace and kindness. Even when he booted them out of the land, his graciousness went with them and established them in the places where they landed. So when Jesus comes, I mean, it makes sense. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. Well, of course he does. That's what God has always done. He heals the lame and the blind and the deaf. Those who are demon-possessed, well, of course he does. That's what God has always done. He seeks out the lowly and the meek. Well, of course he does. It's precisely the reason he called Israel. It's what he's always done. He dies for his people. Yes, this starts to make sense. Because the sacrifices were never about how good you were, but how good it was. And when you begin to see how good Jesus is, when you begin to see that he is indeed perfect in all of his ways, that he is without spot or blemish, you begin to see that he is the one who has died, not to take away the sins of everyone else, but to deal with yours. See, in the end, it all comes down to Jesus. We can look at those two gentlemen and say they're doing the exact same thing, maybe for different reasons, but in the end, the practice of their hands and the movement of their feet look precisely the same. And in some sense, that's true. But their way of approaching God makes Jesus incomprehensible to one and makes one righteous by faith. Those who have trusted in God understand that he is the one who has initiated, he is the one who has upheld, and in grace continues to work for his people. They see all of that in the resemblance of what Jesus Christ does on the earth. But those who think that they are right with God in their own work, who think that their character and their cleanness is their own or of their own doing, will never really or truly understand the grace of God as it presents itself in Jesus Christ. They will, as Paul says here, trip over the stone of stumbling. Paul's quote here is an amalgam of Isaiah 8:14 and 22:16 or 28:16, Psalm 118:22 and a passage from Joel. He just kind of mashes them all up together, especially the two Isaiah passages. Seems like that's where he's pulling them from. He's not quoting exactly, but what he is doing is quoting correctly. There is a stone set in the middle of Jerusalem. And many people are going to trip on it. Because the foundation for them, the cornerstone for them, is not the work of God. It is their own work. And blindly walking, they don't see it, and they trip and they fall, and it crushes them. But for others, they're always watching for the work of God to establish them. And they see it in Jesus Christ, and they trust in it, and they believe in it, and they will never be put to shame. 
when God comes and he sets up his throne and he judges the nations. Those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. Friends, we have to fully and completely take this to heart. It is your response to Jesus that decides everything. You can trip over him and be destroyed. He can be a stumbling block to your path to righteousness, or he can be the very cornerstone, not only of your life, but of the entirety of the building of God. This world is swift in punishment, and it is swift and harsh in requirement. It places burdens on you for perfection and effort. One misstep, one wrongly spoken word, and you're out. You must toe the line, you must be one of the group, or you cannot belong. This world isolates, it destroys, it oppresses the soul, and it forces you to carry the burdens of your own wrongdoing, weights that I guarantee you, if you knew what they truly were, you could not bear. Not before the world, certainly not before God. So, Jesus invites you. Come. All. Not come the elect. He doesn't call you the elect, but he calls to everyone. Come, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call of the Lord Jesus Christ is not for those people who think they can handle it. It's not for those who think that they are free from care and concern. It's not for those who are righteous by their own works. It is for those who know truly the baggage that they carry, who understand the burdens they bear, and wish by any means to be done with them. This is what makes the gospel good news. You do not need to be perfect. You do not need to be good. You do not need to be mighty to get God's attention. You don't need to be of the right words. You don't need to formulate yourself in prayer correctly. You don't need to make sure that you're saying it over and over and over again to get the attention of God. What do you need? Do you need training? Do you need the desire, the physique, the passion to run the race well? Do you need the fitness of a track athlete, the best of the theologians, the most moral of men? What do you need? You need precisely what we so often sing. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come, then, Fellow sinners, see the blessings of God in human flesh. This Jesus who cares, who heals, who forgives, who listens, who cheers, who cleanses, and lifts you out of the very flames of hell. Come and believe on Jesus, who is no less than the very Messiah of God. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, be kind to us sinners. 
We are not worthy of your presence, of your kindness, or your salvation. Yet we seek such things, for we know who you are, for you have shown us time and time again. You are patient and kind. You are full of grace and mercy. Help us today. Give us mercy and grace in Jesus yet again, that his great work might be the praise of your people. We ask such things for our good and for his glory. Amen. If you will, stand and sing with us our song of response. O church, arise. <laughs>